Hello, everybody. Uh, so, hope you guys all had a wonderful Christmas. And I hope that 2022 turns out to be a wonderful year for all of you. So, in spite of this holiday weekend, you guys have all made it to this particular episode of Money Concepts. So, that shows an enormous amount of dedication to investing and and things like that. So thank you all very much for showing up today. Uh, when I uh, sent out this meeting invite, I, I really didn't know how many people would show up because it's the holidays. Uh, so this is the third episode of Money Concepts. So we are a, um, an, something like an invest, investing club where we meet every Sunday and we just discuss all things investing. Uh, this week, the topic is about inflation. And uh, if you guys have any questions, you can ask me about inflation or about anything else uh, that, that you're interested um, in clarifying uh, regarding investing and, and so on. So I chose inflation as the topic for today because uh, it's on a lot of people's uh, minds. So we are, we are doing a lot of holiday shopping and so on. And uh, for example, when I go to Costco, one of the things I see is that uh, for five years, I've been buying this uh, water at Costco. For, uh, they, they sell these 40 packs of water. And I used to be paying $2.99 for that 40 pack of water. And uh, a month ago or so, they increased the price from $2.99 to $3.19. Um, and uh, that, that is one, one way inflation hits us through outright increases in the price of things. But uh, a lot of companies are also being a little more sneaky than that. Uh, they are reducing the amount of, uh, um, uh, they're, they're reducing the quantity of the stuff they put in their packages and so on. So you might be buying a bag of uh, chips and now uh, the, the bag of chips might contain some uh, fewer chips for the same amount of price. And, and so on, and that, that is also inflation. So we, we are seeing prices all around us uh, go up, and that, that is kind of a scary thing for us because uh, we have all these hard-earned dollars which we have saved and invested over a long period of time, and those dollars are uh, being eroded. The value of those dollars and their purchasing power is being continuously eroded by inflation, and uh, that's, uh, that, that can be a scary thing for a lot of us. And uh, I'm scared too. And uh, I, I don't really have a magic solution to the problem of inflation or anything like that. But one thing that uh, we can do is we can definitely look at uh, history. So uh, there have been periods in history and places in the world where inflation has been far worse than what we are currently experiencing uh, at least in the US. So um, in, in Germany, there was this period of hyperinflation and uh, more recently there was hyperinflation in Zimbabwe. And even in the US, um, towards the end of uh, 1980, uh, so 1975 to 1980, that, that period, uh, inflation was running uh, in double digits. And uh, so this is not a, an experience that is new to just us. For many years, we have not had inflation. But uh, uh, plenty of smart people uh, have experienced inflation in their 
lifetimes and uh, plenty of smart people uh, including people like buffett have written um, lots of smart things about inflation and so on and we can go and read those things and we can learn from those writings we can uh, sort of try to figure out how to think about inflation how to plan for sustained inflation if if this rate of inflation goes on uh, for for a few years how, how do you plan for that and uh, we can try to understand what kinds of companies are better to own during inflationary periods in our portfolios and so on and so forth so that is the uh, sort of goal of this episode to to discuss all these things um now of course you can say that uh, this period that we are undergoing right now um this period that we are going through that that is very very different from any other period in history because never has government debt been so high or never has there been so much of money printing by uh, central banks and so on and uh, all that is true um, so uh, today we may be living in a period that is completely different from uh, what has happened in history before us uh, but as mark twain said uh, history does not repeat but it often rhymes so i think there is still a lot of value to be learned from people who have thought deeply about inflation and who have written about inflation uh, when they experienced it several years ago uh, there is still even if today's circumstances and their circumstances were not exactly the same i think there is a lot of value in learning about inflation from from their writings so uh, that is sort of the uh the goal behind this particular session and uh i i i'll be happy to sort of take your questions on in- inflation or if you want me to talk a little bit more about inflation i i can do that so if anyone wants to ask a question straight off the bat um i'm uh, i i can i can answer those questions anybody anyone wants to ask a question okay we have uh, steven wilkinson who steven is actually a, a friend of mine you are unmuted um hi jinke how's how's things very exciting thank you for uh, taking my call and i've been looking forward to um experiencing this this evening um very quick question for you because i've got lots of them around the subject of inflation and investing what is the the principal lesson that you will be focusing on or you want people to take away possibly concentrate on as you explore this subject right um so there are lots of lessons and i have uh, lots of things that i want to discuss but if there is one principal lesson to take away um it is that as investors our goal should be not just to increase our money but it should be to increase our after tax purchasing power so the way any kind of investing works is we put up uh, today's dollars as you know and we put up some amount of dollars today and over a period of time whether we buy a farm or a stock or an apartment building or wh- whatever it is whatever the nature of the investment is we collect uh, cash flows from this investment in the future uh now because of inflation 
the problem is the present dollars that we put in are more valuable dollars. They buy more things. Whereas the future dollars that we collect from this investment, they come later down the line and they are less valuable. They buy fewer things. And so uh, even if our investment has appreciated significantly in dollar terms, uh, it may not have appreciated significantly in purchasing power terms. Uh, so when we uh, make an investment, our goal should be to increase our purchasing power over time after paying taxes. So Buffett, in his 1980 letter to Berkshire shareholders, he, he has this wonderful quote. And I just like to read this quote here because it's very, very relevant to this discussion. He says, um, if you forego 10 hamburgers to purchase an investment, uh, so you forego 10 hamburgers to purchase an investment, and then from that investment, you receive dividends, which after tax allow you to buy two hamburgers. So you've foregone 10 hamburgers and you, you, you've now bought back two hamburgers. And then you receive upon the sale of your holdings, again, after tax proceeds, that will buy eight hamburgers. So you've got dividends that bought you two hamburgers and then your, uh, after uh, you, you sold your stock or whatever, the investment, and that allows you to buy eight hamburgers. Then he says, you've had no real income from your investment, no matter how much it appreciated in dollars. You may feel richer, but you won't eat richer. And this is such a simple lesson, such a beautiful way to put it, but uh, we so often forget this basic thing about investing. The goal is not to make money. The goal is to increase our after-tax purchasing power. I, I would say that is the single um, biggest takeaway uh, from, from this particular session. Thank you. Um, may I make another comment? Oh, absolutely. Um, I am probably, I don't know whether I'm the oldest, oldest or one with the most um, longevity on your call today, but I remember growing up in the 1970s in a business household um, in the UK, which was a period of very high inflation. Um, inflation at the very peak in 1978, in the year before Margaret Thatcher was elected in 1979, was running at just over 20%. Um, so it was a period of great inflation. And the interesting thing about inflation and experiencing it then, and certainly in reflections with members of my family who were active in business at that time, that in the theory, people don't really know very much about, but it's tremendously important, is the way that businesses act during times of high inflation. And during times of high inflation, there is such a there are such mixed signals coming from the market that business owners tend to divert their energies away from value creation and into what I would call avoidance because inflation never ever comes without increased activity on the part of the state to try and mitigate a, a, a situation or environment which is starting to run away from them. So there will be increased taxes, there will be increased interference in price signals, there will be increased activities 
around um, regulation. And governments will try with increasing desperation to set incentives in the way that that stops the problem becoming so dangerous that it just spirals out of control. And what business people are doing is spending much more time locked into rooms with lawyers and accountants trying to figure out ways of hiding money, of avoiding the double inf- the double taxation of inflation itself and of um, of regulation and direct taxation. And also they will be trying to battle the um, the problems that arise from mismatching time uh, payment and receipt scales, which lead to all sorts of accounting issues in business. Um, and I think nobody who's been in business or who's entered the marketplace in the last 30 years has the faintest idea of what that actually means in practice. You have to go back to the 1970s to read what business people were thinking about in order to truly understand how business decisions are being made and those at the end of the day impact investment decisions. Oh, absolutely. This is such a valuable point. Um, so uh, what, what what you're talking about um, is, is actually um, that there's a far more uh, general principle at work here, and that is the concept of second-order effects. So um, whenever we analyze the impact of a complicated thing like inflation, when there are a large number of actors involved, there is the government which is trying to uh, put into place various measures and so on to bring down inflation. There are individual business owners who are trying to maximize their own self-interest. There are consumers and savers and lenders and there's an enormous number of uh, different kinds of stakeholders. And when something like inflation hits, how each of them will behave and how they will change their behavior in response to the behavior of other people around them and so on. This is a complicated system of feedback loops and second order effects. And it is not as simple as most economics textbooks um, make it out to be. This is a complex system. And when we are trying to understand what's going to happen in a complex system, we always have to keep in mind uh, these kinds of second order effects of how people, not just how people will react to inflation, but how people will react to how other people react to it and so on and so forth. So that that is a, a, a beautiful point. And uh, as you say, uh, much of the developed world, we have not seen this kind of inflation um, and we have not had to fear this kind of inflation for a very, very long time. And so the the players and the actors um, and the agents who are in charge of making decisions, uh, they are all completely new. They have not had this kind of experience that they had earlier. Um, and, and so um, we, many, many of us are trying to figure this out for the first time. And so that, that is going to create all, all kinds of interesting uh, second order effects. Without wanting to hog your microphone, and I promise I won't ask any more questions afterwards, um, or perhaps a comment, one of the things that an inflationary environment in business and investing terms does is it opens up whole new areas of, I'm going to say, accounting manipulation that are not um, 
relevant in a non-inflationary environment. And one of the most important ones um, is the um, LIFO, FIFO, or LIFO, FIFO um, accounting, particularly in capital-intensive and um, working capital-intensive businesses. Um, is that something that you've considered or find interesting? Uh, absolutely. So uh, for, for those on the call who are uh, who are not uh, familiar with these terms, uh, LIFO stands for last in, first out, and FIFO stands for first in, first out. Um, so when you uh, when, when uh, a business sells something to a customer, um, now a business usually has an inventory of products that it keeps, and so um, when the prices of these products are increasing over time because of inflation, now the business has a has a question in front of it. So if if the business let's say the business has bought two items one for uh, $5, and then the same item, it has bought it for, uh, say, $6 because of inflation. The price at which it has bought these two items is different. Um, then let's say the item, um, the business sells this item for $7. Now the question is, um, should, should the business book $1 of profit or should it book $2 of profit? Because it can take the view that... Um, the, the first item that it bought, it sold. So it bought that item for $5 and it sold it for $7. So now um, if, if it followed what's known as first in, first out type of accounting, then uh, the profit of the business would be uh, $2 because uh, uh, the price is five versus the, uh, the sale price is seven. Whereas if the business took the view that uh, what, what it sold most recently is the last thing that it bought, um, then uh, that would be a LIFO system of accounting. And in that LIFO system of accounting, the profit of the business would be just $1 because the cost of the item would be $6 um, instead of $5. So um, so businesses, um, they, they choose um, which form of accounting to apply based on a variety of factors. So some businesses want to overstate profits uh, because they think that's good for their stock price or whatever. So... Uh, they, they may choose one form of accounting for inventory. Other businesses, uh, they, they don't want to uh, maximize reported profits. Uh, they, they want to minimize taxes. And uh, when, when they, so, so they may choose the other kind of accounting that states the lowest amount of profits so that they have to pay the lowest amount of taxes. And, and so all, all these things uh, businesses do and these effects become more important during inflationary times. Thank you. Absolutely. Okay, I'll I'll take the next caller. Uh, his name is Vinod. Hi, thank you, Deva. How are you? Hey, doing good. How are you? Thank you. Thank you for arranging this session again. Uh, it is very fascinating topic. Um, I have a, a couple of questions. Uh, probably I'll forward and then maybe uh, it would be good to share your uh, views on these right um, sure uh, I have very limited understanding in, in terms of the market but in general uh, I do have a view in terms of moderate inflation it is it is uh, maybe a direct directly proportional to a slightly increased return in the overall market um, is that my understanding correct if that is the case uh, for example people who are earning, say, $100 and spending less, say, 
20 um, percentage of their uh, income and the more dollar that you have to invest will definitely boost your overall uh, return is this theory uh, uh, do you have any viewpoint on this particular theory uh, before i jump into the other topics well um, there are a lot of different variables so so for example you you mentioned the the savings rate right yeah. uh, so people earn a certain amount of money and then they, uh, they they spend a certain amount and save the remaining and then maybe invest uh, a portion of their savings um so um some some people their incomes uh, keep up with inflation for other people their incomes uh, may not keep up with with inflation yeah. or uh, it may keep up with inflation but there may be a lag between inflation and when their incomes actually rise uh so the these kinds of people are uh, are actually hurt by by inflation so yep. uh, uh, to to take a simple example let, let's say you have 100k of income per year right and uh, let, let's say you save 10% of your income so so you have 90k in expenses and uh, you you have 10k in in savings now uh, if inflation is 7% okay um but your income doesn't rise uh, right away to keep up with inflation then what happens is you have the same 100k of income um but now your expenses um are going to be 96.3k instead of just 90k because uh, there's going to be a 7% growth in your expenses so that means your savings will be only 3.7k in um in in savings so inflation was only 7% but if you look at your savings they've now dropped from 10k to just 3.7k so that is a 63% drop in savings uh, mm-hmm. out of just a 7% uh, um inflation so so um for for this kind of person uh, if if you're going to be investing these savings somewhere and and so forth uh, uh, un- unless you can uh, get a very very high rate of return on your savings um you you are more likely to be hurt by inflation than helped by inflation yeah but uh, other way around say for example if they are able to save 80% of their income uh, in that case right. and, and I, if they are assume they have invested in the market it has a, it is definitely a well, moderate inflation will help them to grow their wealth is that that theory is also true well uh, that theory may be true but it has to when when you look at uh, investing returns you always have to look at it in terms of purchasing power uh, yeah. not not just nominal returns not just dollars but uh, real returns and uh, it depends on the kind of investments that they are able to make so if they invest in uh, if their portfolio companies are uh, somewhat immune to inflation or better protected against inflation and so on then over a long period of time uh, their returns will be better but uh, if they if they invest in a company that uh, that doesn't have any kind of pricing power or anything like that so the cash flows of the company that they invest in they don't grow in proportion to inflation um and so on then um o- over a long period of time uh, that that kind of investment is actually going to hurt their purchasing power over time so so a lot depends on what what kinds of investments they make yeah. as well yeah. yeah for example if there is a yeah i got your point but if there is if there is a scenario where 95 percentage of them like it's doing the indexing is there is any better strategy we can take out to maybe protect against this inflation the if 
for the index investors right is there is any strategy which they can explore to maybe to fight against inflation in terms of their returns well um so by by definition an index in investor uh doesn't really have a strategy other than maybe dollar cost averaging into <laughs> into an index right mm. uh so um are there strategies that investors active investors can use to protect themselves from inflation absolutely but if you're just going to save money and then buy into an index uh every every month or whatever um then that that is basically your whole strategy and uh there's not much you can do um uh, your your returns will depend on the index's real returns over time and so uh that th- th- there isn't much you can do on the investing front but okay. there are a lot of steps that individuals can take um outside of uh investing so mm-hmm. so for example uh, my my friend uh rational walk um so some of you may be following him on on twitter his handle is uh, rational walk and uh, he he's recently written an article about uh, uh, these investments called uh, i bonds in the us so the us government uh, sells a certain kind of bond called the series i bond mm. and that bond has some very interesting features it uh, the the interest rate on the bond is basically pegged to uh, the consumer price index the cpiu and so uh, in an inflationary environment uh, the bond actually yields um, a, a a rate of return that can protect investors from inflation and uh, in fact one of the reasons why i wanted to have this call today is to is to talk about this this particular uh, nugget which is the i bond uh it turns out that there is a maximum of $10000 that you can invest per year into mm-hmm. an i bond mm-hmm. but that is based on uh, a calendar year so if you want what you can do is you can go put $10000 into an i bond before uh the end of uh, today's december 26th so before december 31st you can go and buy $10000 worth of i bonds and then again immediately on january 1st you can buy another $10000 worth of i bonds because it's uh, the the limit is uh, on a calendar year okay. basis uh, so so there are things like this that you can do to try and protect some of your capital uh, from inflation but those are not really things uh, for an index investor these are things outside of index investing got it got it and uh, for the active investor say i think the the function inflation function will also directly proportional to your your cash portion right for example if you if you are having too much of cash uh in sitting in your portfolio uh probably uh only those portfolios might be more uh risk towards the inflation right so for example berkshire is currently sitting close to 150 or 140 billion uh right uh, by of cash right so right. from active uh investment strategy perspective apart from say companies with the branding power who can uh, basically raise prices without um, Im- impacting their sales uh, is there is any other lens that we can look at it uh, to tackle this problem yes absolutely uh, so that what you have asked is a, is an extraordinarily important question and uh, so before uh, 
reading Buffett's letters, I had assumed that pricing power was the single most important thing. Um, so let, let's let's take a simple example. Let's say we have a coffee shop, right? Now let's say the coffee shop makes 200K in, in revenues each year. And then they have costs. And these costs are, you know, coffee beans, rent, employees, and so on. So, so let's say these, these costs come to 80% of revenues. So 200K of revenues, and then 80% of that is costs. So 160K of costs. And that, that, that leaves a profit of uh, a pre-tax profit of about 40K per, per year. And let's say that that's how uh, the coffee shop behaves in a 0% inflation environment. Now, suddenly, if you take this coffee shop and put it in a 7% inflation environment, uh, what, what's going to happen? Well, the first thing that's going to happen is costs are going to rise. So uh, coffee beans are going to cost more, rent is going to cost more, employees, uh, you have to pay them more, and, and so on. So let's say in a 7% inflation environment, the costs have, have increased by 7%. So now instead of uh, 160K, uh, the coffee shop uh, now has costs of about 171.2K. That, that's the cost of the coffee shop. Now, secondly, uh, let's say that this coffee shop is able to raise prices because people love the, the coffee sold by the shop or something like that. So this, this coffee shop has pricing power. So it's able to raise prices by by 7%, the same amount um, that inflation uh, hits. So now uh, from 200K, revenues have gone to 214K simply because the coffee shop has raised prices by 7%. So if you look at the pre-tax profit, um, so earlier it was 200K minus 160K, which is 40K. And now it is 214K minus 171.2K, which is 42.8K. So that's a 7% increase in the pre-tax profit of the coffee shop. So you might think that, hey, um, inflation was at 7%, but now uh, this coffee shop is making 7% more money. So it's reasonably immune to inflation. It's uh, so there's absolutely no problem here because uh, um, inflation is 7%, but profits are also rising at 7%. Uh, now, this is where Buffett has written this wonderful article for Fortune magazine. And when I read that article, I had uh, almost an epiphany. So I realized that what Buffett was saying is absolutely right, that this coffee shop is not actually immune to inflation. And why is that? this coffee shop is not immune to inflation. It's got to do with the difference between earnings and cash flows. Now it is true that this coffee shop in an inflationary environment is able to make 7% more profit than in a non-inflationary environment. But all this profit cannot be taken out by the owner of the coffee shop. And why can't all this profit be taken out? Because the coffee shop needs capital to run. So let's say, for example, that the coffee shop has uh, three weeks of inventory and receivables. Okay, so in, they have inventory because they have to keep coffee beans and things like that in the store, and uh, they may supply coffee to restaurants and things like that. So they have a certain amount of receivables uh, as well. So let's say that's equal to three weeks of revenue, right? Three uh, divided by fifty-two times the revenue. Now, if you look at how much capital this coffee shop uh, needs in inventory and receivables. It, in, in a 0% in a inflation environment, this coffee shop needed about 11.5K 
so $11,500 of capital. But now, because they are selling more coffee, um, this coffee shop is going to need more capital to make those extra sales of coffee. So this coffee shop is going to need about 12.35K or $800 more in capital than what this coffee shop needed previously in the 0% inflation environment because they have more in inventory and they need to have more in receivables. So, so it turns out that yes, income has increased by 7%, but capital has also increased. And if you, um, and, and where is this capital going to come from? This capital is going to come from the profit of the, that the coffee shop makes, right? So they, they make 40K, uh, they, they make 42.8K uh, in, in profits in the inflationary environment. Um, but the problem is off okay, $800 uh, has, has to be reinvested back into the business just to uh, take into account these extra capital needs of the business. And so that, 800K, that, that $800 is not available to be withdrawn uh, by the investor. And so uh, the profits haven't gone from 40K to uh, the cash flows haven't gone from 40k to 42.8k they have gone only from 40k to 42k which is only a 5% increase uh, so in a 7% uh, inflationary environment this coffee shop has managed even though it has raised its prices by 7% and everything it has managed only a 5% increase in cash flows that an owner can take out of the coffee shop now buffett made this point in his uh, 1977 article. So he wrote an article for Fortune magazine, and this article is called How Inflation Swindles the Equity Investor. And this is the central point that he made in this article, saying that it's not enough for a business just to have pricing power. The business should be able to not just raise prices, but they should be able to raise return on invested capital. Only those businesses which can raise return on capital during inflationary times. Only those businesses are immune to inflation. So they should be able to put more money into your pocket during inflationary times, but they should also be able to put that money into your pocket without requiring any extra capital. So that is uh, what it means for a business to be immune to inflation. And such businesses are very, very there. So th this is a, is a major lesson from Buffett's uh, letter. And uh, if, if I had not read that letter, I, I would never have understood this. So uh, that I, I, I think a lot of investors still don't understand this. So, so th thank you for asking that question. It, it, I gave you a very long-winded answer to your question, but um, th this is sort of an important point that I wanted to make during this call. It's really great. Uh, I think uh, probably I will look at that uh, article as well uh, if it is available in the internet. And thank you for uh, Yes, that article is available. Uh, it's available for free. So uh, I, I would encourage uh, all of you to to go and read that article. That's uh, uh, It was written in 1977, but it is still sure. one of the best things on inflation that I have ever read. Um, and and actually, if you uh, and Stephen actually mentioned this this article when when I said that I was going to do this call about uh, uh, inflation, he he added a comment uh, to to my tweet saying, 
uh, hey, uh, I think this this article you should all read because it's very good. <laughs> and uh, sure. I, I agree with him 100%. Sure, sure. Thank you. Much appreciated. And one more final question if I am allowed to ask. Sure, sure. Go ahead. Go yeah. ahead. So um, while we understand the inflation uh, risk, you do see a packets of uh, opportunities where it is immune to the inflation, not in the way they are pricing power and uh, the brands and other things. But if you look at certain things, the value of uh, certain goods uh, increases over the period of time. For example, uh, for booking a car, right? Um, we used to call uh, uh, maybe a um, taxi, uh, uh, taxi company where to uh, provide our time earlier and then maybe bargain uh, agree the rate and then uh, they will send the, the cab whenever it is ready. But now it is just a sim, uh, simple app like Uber can right. do a lot of technology advancements where a lot of um, cost has been optimized already. They don't have to maintain a company. They don't have to employ to uh, receive your manage your the logistics and things like that. Right. So how do you right, see exactly. this, these kind of opportunities? Right. If it is safe, is it fair to assume all the technology related companies um, badly immune to the inflation there is a cost element in terms of the labor cost but in general uh, can we make that assumption or how do you see this point uh, right uh, this is again another uh, uh, wonderful question and uh, so it is true that over the years uh, businesses have found more and more efficient ways of uh, delivering products and services to uh, consumers. Um, so, uh, you know, supply chains constantly keep getting more and more efficient and operations of uh, large companies uh, are constantly being optimized and, and so on. And um, this uh, kind of, uh, the, the, the improvement in operating efficiency and, the, and also the improvement in productivity uh, in the economy, uh, has it, it creates a kind of deflationary uh, pressure because you can you can bring uh, products and services to consumers at a much lower cost than what you could do previously, and a lot of companies are doing this, and uh, so that um, uh, puts a deflationary spin on things. Um, and there are some very very smart investors. Um, so uh, you may have heard of uh, Kathy Wood and others uh, who've had very uh, very good returns, and they are saying that uh, inflation right now, uh, we, we are far more, uh, we should be far more worried about deflation and not inflation uh, because uh, uh, technology is progressing at such a rapid pace uh, with artificial intelligence and robotics and uh, all these technologies that are uh, coming into the market. Uh, all these forces are deflationary. And so we should be a lot more worried about deflation than inflation. Uh, this is a viewpoint, and I'm I'm familiar with this viewpoint, but unfortunately, uh, I don't know much about this. And uh, so, inflation—it's reasonably clear to me that inflation is here right now. Um, whereas this deflationary argument, it, it, uh, I, I can understand the argument, but it sounds more like uh, theory at at this point. Um, so. Uh, it's it's true that a lot of things today are available for much cheaper than what they were earlier. You you only have to look at the price of uh, personal computer or some, something like that. Uh, 
but there are plenty of other inflationary things as well so so anything involving atoms uh, <laughs> is inflationary and anything involving bits is deflationary to to a first order approximation and um, so so far at least um, um, the history is that uh, inflationary forces have dominated more than deflationary forces and uh, of course uh, central bank policies and things like that may may have a certain uh, may, may may have something to do with that but um, well uh, i i i would say that uh, um, i i don't see uh, this this thing uh, changing o- over a period of time there may be deflationary forces in the economy but that doesn't mean the net result will be deflation the that there could be a few deflationary forces but still the net net result could be inflation uh, simply because there are so many more uh, powerful inflationary forces than deflationary forces okay that's a great uh, explanation and thanks for patiently answering all my question uh, oh absolutely that's all from my side thank you for the opportunity oh absolutely thank you and uh, uh, the I'll, i'll take the question from the next caller it's uh, Shashi Hi Tenke can you hear me Yes Hi how are you good Yeah doing good how are you Good good uh so uh thanks Tenke also thanks for uh Steven as well uh some of his comments were very insightful uh thank you for that um i have Absolutely. one question so you should uh, <laughs> yes you should you should follow Steven on on twitter uh, he he's he's got a lot of a uh, lot of experience and uh, uh, you know he he reads a lot and he, uh, he he's got a ton of insight into all kinds of things not just inflation yes, absolutely the way he spoke uh, it was clearly evident <laughs> uh, so uh, one thing i wanted to know uh, most uh, i mean a lot of investors think real estate uh, as a inflation hedge and right. uh, why do you think uh, like that could you could you maybe you know elaborate on that uh, a bit more so you know even i can get an understanding also our viewers can get some understanding on that right exactly so this is a uh, point that is uh, hotly debated and there are good arguments on both sides so some people think inflation uh, real estate is a good inflation hedge some people think uh, not so much and i'll explain the reasons for this and uh, you can sort of make up your own mind uh, i i have a viewpoint and i'll give you my viewpoint but uh, you may or may not uh, agree with this viewpoint <clears throat> um so there are two kinds of real estate first of all um so there is the primary home that we own uh and uh, and then there is uh, Uh, other real estate that we may own uh, just for the purposes of renting it out or uh, making income from it or some something like that uh, so there is a very big difference between these two uh, in terms of whether it's a, it's a good inflation hedge or not um, so during times of inflation um, real estate prices generally go up um, and uh, they go up they may go up approximately in line with inflation Uh, may not be exactly in line but more more or less approximately so if i buy a house for say uh, uh, 500k today 
and uh, in, in, in inflation is uh, 10%, then next year uh, the, the house may be worth 550K, uh, just, just because the value of the house has risen in um, keeping in pace with inflation. Uh, but now the question is, uh, does this increase from 500K to 550K? Uh, has it really helped me? Now, if you look at my net worth, my, the total assets minus the total liabilities that I have, uh, this uh, this has gone up by 10% because of, uh, or, or this has gone up as a result of uh, the, the value of the house going up. But uh, what can I do? I can't sell my primary residence uh, because if I sell my primary residence, where will I go and live? Uh, I have to buy another house. And if I have to go and buy another house, uh, that house's price would have also risen uh, by, by, by 10% or so. Uh, so the, as far as uh, I'm concerned, uh, the increase in value of my primary residence, uh, for all practical purposes, it has just stuck me with a, with a bigger property tax bill. Uh, <laughs> uh, not, nothing else has happened. Uh, the house has increased in value, but I can't, I'm not going to sell the house. I can't, uh, um, I, 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 if I don't want to leave the house or something like that, um, all I have is a bigger property tax bill. So, <laughs> So, so uh, to me, uh, the, the, uh, that, that's not a very good inflation hedge uh, because there's no way I can take advantage of the rise in value of the house. Um, now, of course, there are, there are some things I can do. I can uh, take out a mortgage on the house and, and so on. I can use the house as collateral to borrow money and, and things like that. But there are risks associated with uh, with all of those actions. If I just want to own the house free and clear, that, that is not really a good hedge uh, against inflation. What I want uh, from a good hedge against inflation is it should put more money in my pocket without me having to put up more capital. So during inflationary times, uh, the cash flows should uh, should increase and uh, this is not really met by a primary residence. But if you look at commercial properties, so if I own an apartment building, say, um, then I may be able to increase the rents on that apartment building uh, over a period of time. Uh, of course, I can't increase the rent right away. Uh, the, the, there will be existing lease contracts and so on in place. But as, as the contracts expire and new contracts uh, uh, and it, uh, the time comes to sign new contracts, I, I can increase the price uh, and, and so on. So properties that we own for uh, rental purposes and things like that, yes, sure. Uh, they can be reasonable hedges against inflation, uh, but not primary residences. That, that is my view. Now, there are a lot of people who disagree with this view and they, they also have good arguments, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to stick with my my point of view here uh how about uh, buying buying a real estate with a mortgage involved for like a longer periods of time so right. during inflationary period you will be paying a fixed amount of you know uh mortgage so that would be quite advantageous uh, isn't that yes absolutely so um this this uh is, is a point about uh, what happens to debt during inflationary times. So yep. the way uh, any any kind of debt, mortgage debt or corporate debt or any, any kind of debt works 
is uh, you you borrow money today and then you use the money to do something uh, but then you have to pay back the money over a period of time and uh, of course there are fixed interest uh, loans and variable interest loans but if you are dealing with a fixed interest loan then uh, a mortgage is basically just a, a series of payments that you have to make in the future and um, those payments uh, to be made in the future they will be made in future dollars and as we have already seen uh, present dollars are worth far more than future dollars in a period of high inflation so when you borrow money you borrow it in present dollars but when you have to pay back the money uh, you have to pay it back in future dollars and future dollars are far less valuable than present dollars and that's why um, during inflationary times um, people who have borrowed money are at an advantage and people who have lent money are uh, at a disadvantage so uh, so so if you take out a, a fixed rate mortgage to buy a property and then uh, if you are able to generate rental income or some, something like that from the property then your payments don't go up with inflation whereas your cash flows from the prop- property can go up with inflation so uh, that that is a good position to be in yeah um i also have a couple of questions uh, i don't see any other callers uh, stand by so i, I can i ask uh, sure sure questions also? yeah so uh, other thing is uh, what's your opinion about uh, negative interest rates uh, as you can see there are some countries uh, the their interest rates are going negative like japan uh, so i mean um in those situations even valuing a company would be uh, quite complicated i believe so do you have any uh, comments on that uh well so so to be absolutely honest with you i i don't um, really understand the forces that have created these negative interest rates so if if someone told me hey um, you you have to put up uh, $100 today and then 30 years later i'll give you 95 dollars <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, i i would say you know no no thank you i'll i'll keep my 100 dollars <laughs> so so i i don't really understand uh, why uh, people would agree to negative interest rates but that yeah. seems to but, be but but uh, i mean for individuals that's fine we can we can either keep the money at home or whatever but for large institutions uh, who want to park their money uh, it will not work for them right they can't just simply keep the money right, uh, right. you know out of the bank so they will have to put it uh, regardless of the interest rates even if it's negative interest rates they will have to put it because to safeguard the money right. so it's, it's something like a safety deposit box so you correct. you have something valuable you want to put it in a safety deposit box but then uh, the the box costs a certain amount of money uh, <laughs> the the, the <laughs> guy who is maintaining the box is going to charge you a certain amount of money and uh, so so that that is something like a negative interest rate uh, absolutely yeah. um so yeah. the thing is um if you can again this this comes to the point of uh, are you a borrower or are you a lender at negative interest rates if if you are a borrower that's great uh and uh, you, you know you, you don't have to go all the way to negative interest rates you can uh, uh, you can just take a rate of interest that's positive but that is far less than inflation that that in real terms 
is also a negative interest rate. Uh, so, so if you can borrow money at two uh, percent and two and a half percent per year, in a in a period where inflation is uh, running at five percent or six percent per year, that is in effect a, a negative interest rate. Um, even though the the actual print uh, is is positive. Uh, so it really depends on whether you are a borrower or a lender. Lots of companies uh, have issued uh, tremendous amounts of uh, debt at uh, very, very low interest rates, uh, some negative and some positive, but much less than inflation. And uh, it's good to be a shareholder of uh, these companies because they have access to enormous amounts of cheap capital uh, with which they may be able to get a much higher uh, return um, than what they are paying in in interest costs. Um, And uh, there are also lots of governments that have borrowed uh, money at uh, very low interest rates. And uh, so this might actually be a little bit of a problem from an inflationary standpoint, uh, simply because uh, when inflation, uh, when when there is inflation, uh, one of the things that uh, central bankers uh, have to do in order to uh, curb inflation is to raise interest rates. Um, But the problem is if they raise interest rates, then that is going to increase the borrowing cost for, for governments. Uh, so if, if the U.S. government, for example, borrows an enormous amount of uh, money, trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars as because of uh, Fed policies or whatever to curb inflation. Um, now uh, the, the cost of, uh, now the government is in a, in a worse situation than it was uh, before, right? Um, they, they can, of course, uh, print money to to get out of this problem but then that that comes with its own set of and and so on so um, in in countries where uh, there isn't uh, enough of an independence uh, of the central bank where the central bank is not sufficiently independent of the government uh, that there will be uh, there, there are there, there are likely to be perverse incentives at play where the the central bank could be pressured by the government not to raise interest rates too quickly. And if they don't raise interest rates too quickly, then inflation um, may, may stay around for much longer and, and so on and so forth. So, so there are uh, these problems as well associated with very low interest rates. Yeah, thanks, Tenke. Uh, also, uh, one more question. Um, earlier, you touched on this point about this uh, pricing power of uh, companies who are going under this inflationary period. Um, right. I mean, I I uh, looked up a couple of companies in my uh, native country where, uh, I mean, suppose there is a developing country whose majority of the income is USD-based, Okay. So even though the revenue hasn't right. jumped, when they report it in local currency terms, it will show as a huge jump in revenue, right? It's sort of like, you know, hiding the true fact uh, whether there was actually growth or not because of the currency variations. Uh, I mean, do you have a good framework on how to, you know, analyze these kind of companies? Uh yeah, that's what I uh, wanted to ask. Right. So, 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 for example, if you if you look at uh, just just to take a specific example, if you, if you take a um, 
say a, a software company in india or something like that say say in, infosys or uh, some, something like that um they they, they do a lot of uh, business in in the us and in other other parts of the world and so uh, their revenues tend to be in us dollars uh but they pay their uh, employees in in indian rupees and and so on for for the most part and so uh, a lot of their costs are uh, in indian rupees so when the revenue is in one currency but the costs are in another currency um ob- obviously one one major uh um factor to consider is uh, the 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 currency exchange rate between between these two currencies um and so um broadly speaking uh, in if if you have uh, one economy where uh, uh, inflation is uh, high say say 10% and another economy where uh, inflation is low say 2% then um the the currency in the 2% inflation environment that currency is going to depreciate uh, at a slower speed than the currency in the high uh inflation region so so in india if the inflation is uh, 10% and in the us if inflation is only 5% then the uh, value of the the purchasing power of the dollar is going to decline at 5% per year whereas the purchasing power of the rupee is going to decline at 10% per year so um if the costs of the company uh, uh the, the costs will also rise rise with inflation because uh, you know they have to pay employees more and things like that uh but if the costs um, don't rise that fast and the costs are uh, in a currency that is being devalued very quickly whereas the revenues are in a currency that is not being devalued that quickly uh, th- those companies are generally uh, uh, there's sort of a built in inflation hedge uh, that that is that's present in those companies simply because of this uh, disparity in the Uh, in the in the rate at which the currencies uh, lose money uh, so so yes but um, there there are always you know big uh, broad um, uh, secondary factors at play and and so on and so forth but um, it, it, at a at a fundamental level from from a first principles standpoint uh, this, this is sort of uh, some something like a built in inflation hedge but uh, most investors these days they only look at the revenue so when when it shows as revenue has grown you know it uh, they put a high <laughs> multiple on that regardless of the you know so that is one thing uh, also um, i mean can you explain the relationship a bit about uh, the inflation and the um, and the interest rates you know like what i understand is uh, if it's uh, if a country goes on a higher inflation typically the interest rates uh, uh, you know it gets high as well uh, just to contain this inflation but on the other hand countries like turkey uh, even though there is high inflation but the government keeps pushing the interest rates down so do you understand the logic behind that uh, if you can explain a bit on that uh right so governments want to borrow as much money as possible for as cheap as possible uh th- th- throughout the history of uh, uh time there, there have been very very few 
uh, governments who have consistently run a surplus. Governments far more often run deficits. And uh, so, so basically a deficit is when a government spends far more than what they take in as tax revenue from its uh, citizens. And uh, so uh, most governments have an incentive uh, to to keep borrowing costs um, as low as possible. Now, I don't know much about what's happening in Turkey, and uh, I I really don't know much about uh, the Turkish government's policies and so on. So this is a general uh, observation about uh, governments um, in, in particular. So what uh, so, so Buffett has this uh, w- wonderful saying. Um, he he uh, in in his uh, t- 2011 letter um, he, he was talking about the U.S. government. So he he has this line in his letter which says, uh, "In God we trust may be imprinted on our currency, but the hand that activates our government's printing press has been all too human." So, 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 so governments, um, you know, do do all kinds of things. Uh, you know, they, they they like to print money, they like to uh, <laughs> uh, keep interest rates low, and and so on. Uh, so, the 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 general economic theory um, is that governments can increase inflation in two or three ways. One is they can print a lot of money, and that's going to increase inflation because you have a lot more money chasing a lot few uh, the, the same amount of goods and services. Uh, so, so that's going to increase inflation. The second thing is governments can spend a lot of money. So generally, when governments undertake these big projects like um, you know trillion dollar infrastructure plans and th- things like that, what's going to happen is that that is going to create inflation. Because governments have to spend a lot of money, they have to buy stuff, they have to pay people, things like that. And those are going to heat up the economy and create inflation. So that's the second way governments. uh, So so government action can create inflation in a lot of uh, uh, ways. And one one of the ways um, that that, that central banks uh, create inflation is by uh, lowering interest rates. So the the logic is that if a central bank lowers interest rates, then people are going to borrow more money. And uh, when people borrow more money, they are going to use the borrowed money to buy all kinds of uh, assets and um, uh, all all kinds of other goods and services. And uh, so if they want to buy more goods and services and more assets, what's going to happen is the price of the assets is going to go up and the price of the goods and services is also going to go up because there are more people with cheap borrowed money who, who want to buy all these things. And uh, so when the prices of things generally go up, that's inflation. And uh, so how do you curb inflation? Well, the root cause of this was the central bank uh, lowering interest rates. So basically, if the central bank decides to raise interest rates, then this whole thing happens in reverse. And so um, this, this is kind of like a negative feedback loop where the central bank raises the lowest the interest rate and then that results in inflation. And then in order to contain inflation, the central bank raises interest rates and, and so on. That, that is a negative feedback loop. And that, I mean, if you take any any course on, say, say macroeconomics or um, uh, in, uh, something like that, um, uh, fiscal policy, monetary policy, all, all these things, um, you, 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 will, uh, you, you, you will encounter the, these kinds of feedback loops. 
And uh, I, I don't understand uh, a lot of these things beyond what, what's taught in a uh, very simple introductory macroeconomics class. <laughs> so I, I can't tell you a whole lot more about this than just what I've mentioned so far. <laughs> understood, understood. Thanks, Tenke. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, it looks like Minod uh, has has another question. So Minod, you can go ahead. Thanks, thanks, Tenke, for taking me again. Um, so I think we I, maybe I missed this particular question, or maybe if not uh, uh, asked clearly, the cash position in the portfolio, right? Right. Um, how? How do we like you talked about certain bond options, inflation protected bond option, other things, right? So typically it is uh, it is immune to uh, it is not immune to inflation, and also there is an opportunity cost as well, right? So in terms of how how long we are keeping the cash, and uh, but typically when you have an opportunity, uh, say a particular stock trade set, say certain P, and uh, and it drops down by its value without any reason. And then probably you can maybe use that cash cushion to load up that opportunity, right? In that case, the excess return that is going to throw up maybe in an immediate uh, uh, timeline that might compensate the, the, the cost or the, the loss that we made in the, in the inflation, right? So how right. do you see this, this aspect? Uh, well, um, so you're absolutely right. There are uh, two kinds of risks to holding on to cash in the portfolio. So one is the opportunity cost. So uh, you you might be invested in the index or something like that, which can give you, say, 7% return or whatever it is. Uh, but instead of doing that, you're holding on to cash uh, because you're hoping for some opportunity to come along uh, where you can deploy that cash intelligently. and uh, get a much, much higher return. But the problem is the longer that opportunity takes to come, the lower uh, your return. Uh, the second kind of uh, thing is uh, when, whenever you have cash in your portfolio, you're risking inflation. So the value of that cash is uh, constantly being eroded every single day by inflation. So uh, th there is that to consider as well. So now the question becomes uh, how much cash should you keep in your portfolio? Yeah. Uh, and and that, that is a very difficult sort of question to answer. And uh, so, so far, uh, what I have personally uh, done is uh, I keep about, uh, so, so right now I have about 20% of my portfolio in cash. Uh, and yes, I am aware that inflation is uh, eroding the value of this cash. Uh, but as you say, I'm hoping for uh, some opportunity to be, become available at a, at a later date. So typically when there is a lot of volatility in the markets, so these days we are seeing quite a bit of volatility, at least in the U.S. markets. So that, there is a higher chance that uh, sooner or later some security could become mispriced or you may be able to acquire some security at an attractive price simply because of the short-term volatility. So that, that is the bet that I'm making by keeping this cash around. Um, but of course, that, that bet may prove to be a, uh, not a good bet to make. And uh, you know, I'm, I may be far better off uh, investing the cash uh, in opportunities that I'm, I can find right now than to 
keep it around hoping for better opportunities to come along uh, so i i don't really know the answer to how much cash you should keep in your portfolio but uh, it it sounds like you're definitely thinking about it the the right way uh, so you you have to weigh the opportunity cost and the the cost of inflation against uh, any prospective uh, in in uh, in investing opportunity that may come up in in the future that that's exactly the right way to think about this uh, trade off okay okay makes sense thank you and uh, sure. how do you see the dividends um, as an potential tool maybe it might not give the the perfect edge against the inflation but um if i'm investing say in a in a dividend based company so or maybe a group of companies through a mutual fund which will right. definitely generate a cash flow which can be consumed in a uh inflationary environment either for investments or for other expenses right how do you see any correlation uh, between these um so the the goal of any uh, any kind of uh, long term in- investing should be to make back uh in in terms of purchasing power more than what you put in right uh this is such a simple fact about uh, um investing so if if i put in 100k today uh I, over, over a period of time i want to uh, af- after paying taxes and so forth i want the dividends i get from this uh investment uh assuming that i'm buying and holding it forever i'm i'm never going to sell the security uh, over time i want the dividends to be higher uh than uh, to to buy me more things uh, have have greater purchasing power than what the 100k that i put in had um now there are uh, again um two two kinds of companies uh, some some companies they are able to reinvest money back into their uh operations at a very very uh, good rate of return and uh, these companies should not be paying a dividend uh, what they should be doing is they should be plowing back every possible dollar back into their own operations because uh, th- those operations will produce uh, far more in the future uh, than what they can possibly give out in dividends today um, but at the same time there are companies that don't have these kinds of opportunities and for for those kinds of companies a dividend uh, absolutely makes sense uh, it's it's a good idea to uh, give back if you can't put uh, invest the cash uh, uh, in a in a reasonable way to to earn a high return uh, it's it's a good idea to return that cash back to the owners who can then uh, pay taxes on it and then decide what to do with it and and so forth but but the idea is uh, you're essentially trading off uh, today's dividends for uh, future dividends so companies okay. that can uh, invest uh, uh, cash uh, intelligently at high rates of return um, they they will not pay much in dividends today but they may pay much more in dividends at a later date because they are able to compound the money um, whereas other companies are going to pay more in dividends today so so it, it's it really it's it's a time value of money calculation and one one thing i will add is that uh, in the presence of inflation what happens is uh, today's money uh, gets valued uh, more highly than tomorrow's money because tomorrow's money is going to buy a lot less and today's money is going to buy a lot more because uh, because of inflation so uh, in an inflationary environment uh, companies that pay more in dividends today uh, may be uh, valued more highly 
than companies that promise to pay dividends uh, in the future, simply because those future dollars may not buy as much as what today's dollars can buy. Okay, makes sense. Sure. Makes sense. Thanks, thanks for explanation. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. So I'll take the uh, next question from uh, from uh, Richards. Uh, I think I think you're on. Mute. Hello, they hear Hello. me. Hello. Yes. Hi. Thank you for for this discussion. Um, I have a question about pricing power. Uh, how right. do you look at this concept? So. Uh, can we pinpoint some things about companies which uh, help us understand if these companies have a pricing power and, and or, or not? Uh, the way I see it, it is um, if company has a moat, then probably this company has a pricing power. How do you look at it? Thank you. Uh, right, absolutely. So um, it's usually uh, reasonably easy to tell whether a company has pricing power or not. Uh, but, uh, well, so le let me give you a, a couple of examples. So uh, if, if, you, if you take a company like uh, C-Scandies, say, uh, it's, it's very, very clear that they have enormous amounts of uh, pricing power because every single year, um, uh, you know, du during December, I, I, I send out a lot of uh, gifts to people, <laughs> uh, and usually they take the form of uh, boxes of C's candies. And uh, every year, I... <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm still not uh, stopping uh, this gift giving. So uh, uh, they, they've been able to raise their prices uh, year after year after year, and uh, their unit volume has not been hurt at all. So uh, it's very, very obvious that this business has uh, pricing power. But this is a particular case of pricing power where the pricing power has been exploited by the business. So Buffett and Munger, what they do is they, they raise prices at Sea Candies every single year. So they exploit uh, the pricing power that they have. Now, there are several businesses that uh, haven't exploited their pricing power to the same extent. Now, those businesses, it's much harder to tell uh, whether they have pricing power or not. Uh, so, so for example, if you take something like uh, like Netflix, say, uh, now there's an enormous amount of value that people uh, derive out of Netflix for uh, something like fifteen dollars a month or whatever uh, net Netflix charges. Now, now Netflix could probably charge, say, uh, they they could raise their prices fifty percent, and they may still not. Uh, a lot of people might still uh, decide to just keep uh, subscribing to Netflix and not uh, and 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 not cancel their subscriptions. But uh, this we we don't know for sure because Netflix uh, uh, hasn't really done this, and uh, you know their their pricing power uh, their their pricing power is is uh, uh, it's it's not as uh, as proven as something like a sea scandies pricing power simply because uh, they, they haven't actually exercised it and seen what happens in the marketplace so uh, when when i think of pricing power i try to ask myself uh, is the product or service that is provided by this company uh, is it so valuable to the customer that 
even if they raise prices the customer is still going to stick around uh, now that that is hard to answer because that is uh, almost a, a hypothetical so if these guys raise prices will the customer stick around or will they leave uh, generally speaking uh, if the product that is offered product or service that is offered by the company if it's very unique if there are no easy uh, easily available substitutes in the marketplace uh then um, the companies probably have pricing power so so for example if you take uh, google or facebook um now now their customers are actually the not not the users but the advertisers now uh, I, i would say that both google and facebook uh they they have a reasonable amount of pricing power if if they raise prices on ads and and so forth uh I, i i don't think uh, too many adver- advertisers are are going to uh, pick up and leave and mass because uh, if if you leave google and facebook where else are you going to go and advertise uh, so so uh, to to some extent pricing power is a function of uh, you know how useful the goods and services that you provide are how unique they are how how hard it is to replace them and what other choices do do customers have in the market if they were not to buy your your particular uh, offering what are the choices they have in the market Think, things like that so that that is how i i think about pricing power right thank you uh, just a small comment from from my side too so i've heard people say that uh, we need to more focus on investing in in real assets and uh, how i think about this is if i have a 10 dollars for example and i need to um and there's an uncertainty in the future so i need to uh, allocate this the 10 dollars in best possible way so i need to option a is i buy a netflix subscription or option b is i go and buy a bread so probably i, I will choose option b so that's also a way how we can think about pricing power there's a uh, some intrinsic value for bread which is not for netflix <laughs> uh, right absolutely so so if, if there is a choice uh, if, if uh, between buying bread and uh, signing up for netflix <laughs> I, i think most people would <laughs> choose the bread uh, <laughs> simply because it's it's more essential <laughs> uh, but right uh, <laughs> yeah but it also means that uh, there's always will be um people will always choose this uh, basic ba- basic products because they are needed what whatever is a uh, uh, condition of economy these basic basic needs will will need to be met right uh right but there is this view that uh, as uh, human societies advance more and more uh, what happens is uh, you know what, what was once a luxury uh eventually becomes a, almost a necessity and uh, so uh, early societies you know they they societies that are not well developed uh, they they spend enormous amounts of money on just on survival um because that that's what they have to do but over time as uh, society develops and as more goods and services are produced and uh, people uh, standards of living improve and and so on uh, there is a uh, a shift uh, 
from just spending on uh, necessities, survival and things like that to more and more of entertainment. And uh, Netflix falls squarely in that uh, entertainment category. And uh, it's generally speaking, uh, historically, societies have evolved from uh, just plain sustenance to uh, entertainment over time. Okay, thank you. Sure. Okay, so uh, do, do we have uh, any, any more questions? Ken K, can you hear me? Yes, I, I can hear you. Great. First of all, um, thank you so much. What an enlightening conversation. I, I totally have tried to study this topic on my own, and I've always fallen asleep. Somehow you kept me up the whole time. <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> which is which is a huge huge compliment and then secondly okay, I'm, I'm i am going to declare victory right here you absolutely should i took notes i was awake i clicked on it at a coffee shop just out of fun because i always enjoy your threads um but this was and i'm i'm obviously on the younger side so some of these questions were amazing um i did send i tweeted you the uh buffett article so that you can send it to your followers oh thank you so much yeah, and then I was just going to ask one quick question and get off. Um, I was listening to your example of the coffee shop, and I was thinking, I mean, what a high standard to meet for a business, not only to be able to raise prices, but then also um, to deliver that, you know, return on that initial capital. Um, do you know of any sectors or anything in, in history that you've seen uh, businesses that can do that? It sounded like such a high bar to meet. Um, and I'll right. just I'll get off the I'll get off the call now. Thank you so much again. So this is this is such a wonderful question. So <laughs> I said that uh, a business, in order for the business to be immune to inflation, it should not just be able to raise prices to keep up with inflation. It should also be able to uh, put enough cash in your pocket without requiring any additional capital. Um, so they have to be able to raise return on invested capital as well. Uh, and that is a high bar, but there are some businesses that uh, that meet this high bar. And one thing to look for uh, in such businesses, uh, the common trait seems to be that they are uh, generally capital light businesses. Uh, so if a business can raise revenues and uh, raise prices and things like that without uh, requiring capital to do so, so if you if you take for example, uh, I mean I, I let's say you, you have a Substack, right? Uh, you you write uh, for Substack every um, say every every week or something like that, and uh, you you charge for this uh, subscription. And uh, if you are able to raise the price of the subscription, um, so instead of paying say five dollars a month, people are uh, from from next month they are going to pay you ten ten dollars a month. And uh, if people still find enough value in your Substack, and so they um, they take the additional price, and then they they don't bat an eyelid, they just continue paying this to you. Uh, that is an example of a business where uh, you you don't require any additional capital, but you have raised prices, and uh, so, so uh, that 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 is a kind of business that could be immune to to inflation. Uh, of course, most real businesses, they, they require a certain amount of capital. 
so, so this is not representative of uh, most businesses. But some businesses are like this. They're very, very wonderful business in the sense they don't require any capital. Um, now, uh, there are lots of businesses that have what is known as negative working capital. So uh, they, they, they have uh, at, at any, any particular time, uh, a business has payables, which is uh, the amount of money that it owes to its uh, suppliers and its employees and, and so on. And then uh, the, the business has receivables, which is how much it has to collect from its customers. And the business has inventory, which is uh, basically the value of uh, the products and the services that uh, it has uh, already developed and it's uh, ready to sell. Now, if a business has more in payables than in receivables and inventory, that is a negative working capital business. So uh, essentially, um, what's happening is that the suppliers of the business are supplying uh, the capital to this business. So the, the business is not getting its capital from its owners. Uh, it is getting its capital from uh, other sources like suppliers and employees and, and so on. So these people are actually uh, providing the business with the capital that it needs. So th this kind of business is called a negative working capital business. And such businesses uh, do very well in inflationary times, simply because um, during periods of inflation, uh, they're, uh, they're, well, they're, they are able to raise prices, but uh, what, what happens is uh, the, the amount of capital that they require uh, is negative. So uh, it, it becomes more negative as they raise prices and so forth. Um, so, uh, so, so they actually need less and less in capital as, uh, because the amount of capital required is actually negative. Um, so, so companies like this um, have have uh, built-in protection against inflation. So, so one one common source of uh, uh, capital, uh, or uh, one one common source of uh, negative working capital is uh, is gift cards. So, if you if you take Starbucks for example, uh, they have all these rewards members who have put in tons of money uh, in, into bil billions of dollars actually. One, I think at the last count, it was about uh, one and a half billion or two and a half billion. I, I don't remember the exact dollar amount, but it's in the billions. Uh, so uh, these customers of Starbucks have put in billions of dollars on their gift cards. And this is basically money that Starbucks has to use for whatever it wants. And it doesn't pay an interest on, on this. And uh, so, so it's basically collected all this money uh, from its customers. Uh, and that is an example of, negative working capital because um, th this money that Starbucks has, it's, it's like a float. And uh, uh, with, with inflation, what's going to happen is uh, the, the price of your latte is going to go up. So if, if you're going to be spending $7 on latte instead of uh, $5, say, then uh, you may decide to load your Starbucks card with $70 instead of $50. If you, if you normally put $50 into your card, you, you normally, you, you'll probably put $70 into the card. So, so this, uh, this negative capital uh, that Starbucks has, negative working capital, it's going to grow with inflation. And uh, that, that is a very, very powerful position to be in for, for businesses. So, so if you can find businesses that not only have pricing power, but also have negative working capital, uh, that, that is a very, very good recipe for uh, protection against inflation.
So uh, the, the next question comes from uh, Sashi. So uh, I'm, I'm going to make this uh, the, the last question because we are already pushing uh, an hour and a half. Uh, so so le let's, let's say this is the last question for today. Okay. Uh, so uh, my question is mainly uh, about your framework on uh, valuation. Um, so what I wanted to know is like, for example, if you take inflation, inflation is measured by the the increase of prices of goods and services and such. But there are certain uh, categories of prices of goods that have increased far, far. I mean, far more than the rest. Yeah. So there is a lot of uh, you know deviation between the rate of change. So when you are particularly valuing a company which falls under a specific industry that has a very high inflation uh, compared to the generic inflation, uh, do you do you normally uh, you know um, adjust your discount uh, rates or uh, how do you go about that? Just just uh, wanted to understand that part. Thank you. Uh, sure. So th this is a, a complicated thing to understand because uh, different products and services, they they have different increases in price uh, during uh, any particular year. So so one particular year, you may find that uh, the, the price of steel is very high or something like that. So so any company that uh, that does construction or, or that uses steel as a, as a raw material, uh, its costs are, are going to uh, be very high during a particular year. But that may just be that one particular year because of some uh, supply chain factors or whatever. Then the next year, you know, the, uh, the, the price of corn may be much higher <laughs> uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so it, it's very hard to predict what a business's um, input costs are, are going to be. Um, so so uh, whether a business is going to experience a significant amount of inflation or not, uh, in any given year is, is very, very hard to predict. Uh, but in general, if you can find businesses that control a large part of the ecosystem around them. So for example, if you, if you take something like uh, Starbucks, uh, yes, they are exposed to the price of coffee, but they have so much scale and they have so many relationships and forward contracts and things like that with farmers all over the world that uh, they have been able to maintain very, very stable gross margins uh, for a very long time. Uh, so if you take uh, Starbucks, for, for every $100 of uh, revenue they make, uh, they, they have about uh, $30 in costs, uh, co cost of coffee and so on. So their gross margin is about uh, $70 for every $100 they make. And this 70-30 uh, split has remained approximately constant for a very, very long time. You know, in the uh, coffee prices have done all kinds of things. Uh, uh, there has been COVID and uh, unit volumes have fluctuated wildly and, and so on and so forth. But Starbucks uh, has maintained fairly steady gross margins over a long period of time. And that tells me that uh, this, this business has a lot of control over um, uh, its suppliers and uh, the, the people it interacts with and the, the, the entire ecosystem around the business. Uh, this business has a lot of control over that. And uh, it's far better to own a business 
that can control its environment than to own a business that's at the mercy of its environment. So when we analyze businesses and try to predict what the impact of inflation uh, will be on them, we have to ask ourselves, do they have scale? Do they have control over their environment? And if the answer is yes, then that is a business that's likely to be better protected against inflation. Thanks, Tenke. Makes sense. Thank you. Absolutely. So uh, I'll just leave you with uh, one final thought. Uh, this is not really related to investing, but this is a quote from Charlie Munger. And uh, Charlie Munger says, one of the great defenses, if you're worried about inflation, is not to have a lot of silly needs in your life. So, uh, so, so he says the one of the best defenses against inflation is just to be frugal in life. Uh, you know, don't, don't spend money unnecessarily and try to save a lot and and so on. So, so that even if the prices that you have to pay increase, uh, you you have a big margin of safety because you're spending uh, far less than what you make. Uh, so, so this is one of the best hedges uh, against inflation is to keep your needs very low and very moderate in relation to your income. Uh, so, so uh, well, in in addition to that, um, we can we can analyze companies and figure out what the right things to own in our portfolio are and and so on and so forth. Uh, but the most important thing at the at the end of the day is uh, to protect ourselves from inflation, is to keep our needs moderate. So I'd like to sort of end this call with, with that particular nugget of wisdom. So thank you all so much for showing up. This was a wonderful discussion. I had a lot of fun doing it. And uh, let's meet again next Sunday. Uh, that'll be in the new year. So wish you all uh, a very, very happy uh, 2022. Thank you. Bye-bye.